Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. The sermon this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. Two Sundays ago, we were studying verses 1 through 6, where Peter reminded us of our union with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and that we should live a new life because of that, because of what Jesus has done and who we are united to him. Therefore, we ought to live in a certain way. We shouldn't live in the passions of our former ignorance, the way we used to live, the way that the world around us lives. Rather, we should have a newness of life. And Peter said that when we have this new life, when we live as faithful Christians, there will be other people who are surprised. They wonder, why wouldn't you give yourself over to these passions and these desires? There's pleasure in them. They're fun. We like them. Why wouldn't you give yourself over to these things? They wonder. But Peter also said they will have to give an account because they are not just indulging in something pleasant. They are indulging passions which are sinful, far beyond pleasure, pleasures that God has placed out of bounds and said, do not partake of these things. And so as Christians, it's not just surprise to other people when we don't participate. Sometimes it also leads to persecution. And Peter wanted us to be reminded that even if they put us to death, we have an eternal life that they cannot touch. Well, as we come to verse 7, Peter continues the same teaching which he's been giving us from the beginning of this letter and which he's been teaching in the most recent context. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We're going to cover this text in three points. Three points, and those points will be imminence, and then temperance, and then vigilance. Imminence, temperance, and vigilance. Let's begin with that first point, imminence. The Apostle Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand. Now that's a short phrase, a small statement of um, an enormous truth. The end of all things. The end of all things is at hand. So Peter presses upon us the imminence, the nearness, the closeness, the proximity of Christ's second advent. This is something that the other apostles in their writings to the church also emphasize. Listen to this from some of the other apostles. Uh, the apostle John, he said in 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour. The last hour, not just the last day before not just the last day before the last day, but the last hour before the final day. James, we heard this from chapter 5 from Pastor Campbell, who said in chapter 5, verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. James says the coming of the Lord is at hand. John says it is the last hour. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in verses 29 and verse 31, he said, Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short, for the present form of this world is passing away. So if you gather up the apostles and you say, Peter, is the end at hand? He'll say yes. If you say, John, is it the last hour? He'll say yes. If you say, James, is the coming of Jesus at hand? He will say yes. If you say, Paul, is the time short? He will say yes. That's what we wrote to you. <laughs> so we find in the apostolic message, the New Testament letters and writings, that they press upon the people of Christ, the church, the imminence of the second coming, the second advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this may raise a question in your, in your mind. You may think, it's been 2,000 years. <laughs> it's been 2,000 years, so how should we understand these consistent statements of imminence from multiple apostles compared with what is to us a, a long duration of time? Those apostles and all of the Christians to whom they were writing, they're long dead, thousands of years dead. So how can it be that Jesus' return was imminent to them when these apostles wrote it if Jesus has not yet even returned 2,000 years later? Well, we need to understand what the apostles mean when they say this and why they say it. Because Peter and John and James and Paul, their purpose is not to predict the time. Their purpose is to proclaim the unpredictable certainty of Christ's return. So there are two things that we see in this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. We see on the one hand, number one, the certainty of the end, but also secondly, the uncertainty of the time. This is what the apostles are pressing, the certainty of the end and the uncertainty of the time. And because the end is certain, and because the time is uncertain, it is therefore imminent for every Christian, for every day, for every age of the church until Jesus Christ comes. Because the end is certain. It is as certain today as it was when Peter had the scribe put the ink onto the paper for him. And for Paul, and for James, and for John. The end is just as certain now as it was then, therefore it is just as imminent because the time is uncertain. And you will not find the apostles saying, on Sunday, the 14th of May in the year 2023, they don't, they don't predict a time, that's not their purpose. Their purpose is not to give Christians a date. Their purpose is to give Christians a knowledge of the reality and the certainty of Jesus' imminent return. Think of it like this. It's like traveling towards a very large mountain. We, we have the benefit of living within eyesight of mountains. The smog often obscures them, but when it rains or when there's strong winds and the right conditions, we can see the mountains around us, and we're reminded of one of the reasons why Southern California is so beautiful. Uh, there are many reasons, but the mountains are one of them when we get to enjoy them. You see them, and you know that the mountains are very large, but how long would it take you to get to them? <laughs> 
If you wanted to get to those mountains, how long would it take you? You know that they're there and you can see them, but it would be very difficult for you to judge the distance. And if you think, well, I can see them, they can't be very far, and you start walking towards them, you will soon realize, I don't know how far away they actually are, but I know that they're there. And the closer you get to them, the larger they loom, the larger they become in your eyesight, but you still can't discern the distance. And yet all the while you know they're there, you see them. That's how Peter and the apostles want us to think about the return of Jesus Christ. It is massive. It is huge. It is the end of all things. It is the the greatest and grandest thing ahead of us. And it is certain. We can see it. It's there. Jesus is coming. In In James' words, the coming of the Lord is at hand. In Peter's words, the end of all things is at hand. In In Paul's words, the time is short. In John's words, it's the last hour. And so we see it. We see the mountain. We see the greatness, the coming of the day of the Lord. But how far away is it? It's it's there. You can see it. It's at hand. But you don't know the exact distance. So the apostles are not saying, measure the distance to the mountain. They're saying, live in light of the fact that the mountain is there. And you are getting closer to it. And time is getting closer to it every day, all the time. The apostles don't predict the time precisely because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, and Jesus did not reveal that day or hour to the disciples. In fact, he, according to his human nature, did not know the day and the hour, he said. So its nearness and its imminence are based on its certainty. We see the mountain, but the timing and the distance are uncertain because those are factors that we cannot see. And Peter wants us to live in light of the end, even though we do not know the timing of the end. Now, what is the end of all things? Peter has already described it in brief in verse 5 of chapter 4. In verse 5, he spoke about unbelievers who indulge in the passions of the flesh, the sinful passions. And he said, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the end of all things is Christ's return, the general resurrection of all, and the judgment of all, living and dead, and their their dismissal to their everlasting places, either of torment or of blessedness. The end of all things, the consummation of all things. So how should we live? How should we live in light of this inescapable and certain judgment that is looming ahead of all people. Does the Christian say, well, my sins are forgiven and my good works will be rewarded, so it doesn't really matter to me. It's a done deal. That's not the Christian life, and that's not the Christian. Jesus calls such a person a foolish virgin with no oil in her lamp who is unprepared to meet the bridegroom when he comes and who is excluded from the wedding feast. So the Christian who presumptuously says, well, I'm good for judgment because I'm a Christian, is presumptuous and is deceiving themselves. There's no oil in that lamp. Rather, the apostles repeatedly exhort the church to be prepared to meet Jesus Christ in purity, to be ready for the bridegroom because we do not know the day or the hour. We must live 
in light of the imminence of the return of Jesus Christ, because it is certain, but the timing is uncertain. So no Christian should live in unrepentant sin, indulging the passions of the flesh, disregarding the commands and the warnings of Jesus through his apostles. Such a Christian, so-called, will not meet or greet the bridegroom with joy. Now, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, if that even frightens you a little bit, what are your options? Repent of your sin. Show yourself a true child of God, a true sheep of Jesus Christ. Live in light of Christ's coming. Live in light of the imminence. Run to him, flee to him, purify yourself, repent of your wickedness, and you have nothing to fear. No, 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 pastor, I want you to make me feel comfortable in my unrepentance. I want you to make me feel comfortable in my lack of purity. I won't do that. I can't do that. The apostle Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, which leads us to our second main point. The imminence of the return of Christ is the preface. It's the foundation. It's the first point. Secondly, we come to temperance. Therefore, Peter says, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled or temperate. Be self-controlled. This is something that Peter has already taught us. Would you please turn back with me in 1 Peter to chapter 1? Look at verses 13 to 15, where we have a call to sobriety, a call to temperance and self-control in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 15. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, thinking clearly, and being sober-minded or self-controlled, temperate, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ's imminent coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's the same cycle of teaching. Jesus is returning to, to meet and greet him with joy. Keep yourself pure until then. With our hope set fully on the salvation Jesus brings us, we prepare ourselves to meet him. You could also compare this on your own time to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And Paul, who makes the argument in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Let me repeat those. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 15. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. These are parallel passages where the imminence of Christ's return is emphasized and the necessity of the believer's holiness goes with it hand in hand. And temperance, sobriety, self-control are the consistent teaching of the apostles in these contexts. So we know that we must be temperate and self-controlled in light of the imminence of Christ's return. But how can we be temperate and self-controlled? Well, let me give you two sub-points here. And these are things you've heard from me before, but they need to be repeated, and Peter repeats them. Repeat and repeat sat on a, you know that one. I always like to say tweet and retweet. We're sitting on a bench. Tweet fell off. Yeah, retweet. Anyway, that's not funny. Point number one. 
and again, you've heard this from me before, but let me remind you. Number one, cornflakes and graham crackers don't stop lust. Cornflakes and graham crackers don't stop lust. As strange as that may sound, and it's intended to be strange because it is strange, let me remind you that cornflakes and graham crackers were originally designed and made by men who thought that a bland diet would help men to fight against lust. And if men eat this bland, somewhat tasteless diet, then they will be able to control themselves better. And I actually kind of like cornflakes and graham crackers, but I have to admit they're pretty tasteless. They're not very good. Will graham crackers and cornflakes help a man or anyone to fight against sin in their heart? Is the way to be self-controlled to use things around me and arrange my circumstances in such a way that that will help me to fight against sin? Yes, but only to a degree. So what we're really saying under this point is we shouldn't confuse environmental control with self-control. It is wise and it is good and it is right to arrange your circumstances and the things in your life in such a way that they maximize holiness and they reduce temptation, of course. But true self-control is not about the things outside of you and around you. True self-control is in the heart. So, for example, men may use computer programs or put their computer in a certain place in the home to keep themselves from lust, and that's, those are good ideas. But whatever obstacles you put between you and sin, you'll jump right over them if your heart still wants it. Same thing for a woman with whatever sin that she's dealing with. She may have the most modest wardrobe, and yet she may have the most immodest heart or envious heart. And so external environmental controls are not true self-control. They are a part of how we can, be, we can exercise self-control, but they're not the real self-control. It's not the safety features of the car that make the car safest. It's the safe driver. So also, for us to be temperate, for us to have self-control, it must come from the heart. Ultimately, self-control is what you must do. You have to say no to you. And you can't rely on external factors or environmental control or graham crackers and cornflakes to produce temperance. True self-control, true temperance comes from a desire to please God, a desire to resist temptation, not from, well, if only I eat these things or if only I arrange my circumstances, then I won't sin. That's not going to change anything if you're not dealing with the heart. Don't confuse self-control with environmental control. Or, in other words, graham crackers and cornflakes don't stop lust. Number two, secondly... Between abuse and disuse is use. Between abuse and disuse is use. Temperance, as the word itself implies, is a balance. It is a middle. And there's two extremes on the side of temperance. Temperance is the lawful use of lawful things. And on either extreme of temperance, 
is abuse, where you unlawfully use lawful things, and disuse, where you refuse to touch lawful things. And true self-control, true temperance, is most certainly not abuse, but neither does temperance require disuse either. Between drunkenness and dryness, there is a drink. Between gluttony and starvation, there is a meal. Between immorality and being a monk, there is marriage. But there are many who confuse temperance with abstinence. The thinking is, if I abstain entirely, I won't sin. And it must always be said that it is safest to abstain from something if you believe there's a danger of sin in it. And that is good and right to abstain if there is any fear or any ping of conscience that there might be sin in this. Yes, you ought to abstain. And there are people who have struggled with something and they need to abstain from it because their body may even have a chemical dependence on that thing. So there is a proper use for abstinence when fighting sin in certain environments and contexts. Absolutely. And abstinence is always the safer option between I, I fear there may be sin in this than, than abstain. But true self-control is about use as the balance, the temperance between abuse and disuse. Temperance is the lawful use of lawful things. And so self-control is not just, well, I'll never touch it, I'll never taste it, I'll never handle it. Self-control is, I will use lawful things lawfully to the glory of God. So we must know how to eat without being gluttonous. We must know how to drink without being drunk. We must know how to enjoy marriage without indulging in any immorality of any kind. Whatever God has given to us that is lawful and good, we must enjoy it lawfully. And when the Christian does this, when you use God's good things in a good way, when you use lawful things in a lawful way, you are being temperate. You are being self-controlled. Would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 for a parallel passage? Colossians 2, where Paul will confirm what we've been saying. And in the context of this passage at the end of Colossians 2, Paul speaks of rules, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, rules of abstinence. And he says in verse 23, these, these, these rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. So it's self-made religion, it's asceticism and severity to the body, but he says they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So if you want to be temperate and self-controlled, you could, you could self-impose a self-made religiosity of utter abstinence. But Paul says it's not going to change your heart. It's not going to change your heart. Just by avoiding those things and ignoring those things won't change your... You, you, you're not actually controlling your appetite. You're not actually learning to manage and control yourself. And he says they're self-imposed. It's self-made religion. God didn't tell you 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You decided to do that, and it's not going to stop you. They have an appearance of wisdom, and we've already said that there are times when uh, abstinence is to be used to help someone fight against uh, addiction and sins of various kinds, but abstinence is not the end goal. Temperance is the end goal. Abstinence can be used as a means to an end, but it's not the end in itself. You might say, well, but Paul, Paul, work with me. I'm abstaining from these things because I don't want to abuse them. And you say, okay, that's, that's a good thing. That you have a good intention and a good desire. They would say, how can I use them without falling into misuse and abuse? Well, what's the next thing that Paul says in Colossians 3? As he trans, you know, again, we have chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles. They're not there in the, in the, the letters. He keeps going. Paul then transitions and says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, again, the imminence of his coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says the way to enjoy these things lawfully without devolving into, into abuse or self-imposed religion of disuse is to be heavenly minded so that earthly things lose their power so that your happiness does not depend on food so that your happiness does not depend on drink so that your happiness does not depend on bodily pleasures even the, the lawful ones we can use those things lawfully more easily when we have a heavenly mindset that finds our true satisfaction, our true delight in Christ and the holiness that comes with Christ. If we are heavenly minded with our mindset on things above, then the things below lose their grip on us and we lose our grip on them. So the way to temperance is not, of course, it's not abuse, but neither is it perpetual disuse. Rather, it's a temperate use, a lawful use of lawful things, which we will more easily and successfully do when we are heavenly minded and we are satisfied in God and in his goodness. That will help us to be self-controlled. The way that Peter has described unbelievers and ourselves before coming to Christ is that we live for pleasure because that's all we get and that's all we have in this life from that perspective. Well, what else is there other than getting paid and then spending that money on the pleasures of life? What else is there? We would say, there's Christ. There's Christ and him crucified in the glory that he has won for us and is bringing to us. And we're living for that and we're waiting for that. I don't need gluttony and drunkenness and immorality. And my body may have desires for those things beyond the limitations that God has set, but I restrain myself in temperance because I love my Lord and I love, I want to see him, I want to greet him with joy. I live for him. My self-control comes from within, not from a environmental control, but self-control. Not from disuse, but lawful use of lawful things. Paul also helps us to, to remember that self-control isn't just about stopping from sin or not doing the bad thing. 
If, if your idea of self-control is just constantly, don't do the bad thing, don't do the bad thing, don't do the bad thing, it'll be, it'll be a miserable fight, a miserable war that's constantly obsessing about not doing the bad thing, which is now always on your mind. Self-control is positively about dedicating yourself to live for Christ and loving what is good and pure and true and noble as we wait for Christ. And that life, the life that is waiting for Jesus and is positively self-controlled unto holiness, that's a blessed life. But the life that's waiting for Christ only with a negative perspective of don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, that's an anxious and fearful life. Now, surely there has to be a sense of both of fear of temptation and resistance, but also that cultivation of holiness. And that's when self-control becomes complete. And that is what Peter is commanding us to do. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be temperate. You must say no to you. You must say yes to Jesus and live for him who died for you. Temperance is not severity to the body. It's not absolute abstinence from lawful goods. It is self-control using what God has given us within the boundaries he has set for us, the lawful use of lawful things for his glory. Thirdly, moving from imminence to temperance to thirdly, vigilance. Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You may have an older translation of this verse, which I think is superior, which says that we ought to be self-controlled and be watchful in prayer. Watchful is translated sober-minded in the ESV. So sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, that's the ESV. Be watchful in prayer are the older translations. There's, there's a lot of overlap between those two translations and what they're trying to communicate, but I think it's better communicated through the phrase, be watchful in prayer. Think of someone who's sober. They're alert, they're awake, they're dialed in, they, they know what's going on, and so being watchful in prayer and being sober-minded for the sake of your prayers really do communicate the same concepts, but the idea is until Christ comes, we watch for him and wait for him, being vigilant, watchful in prayer or through prayer. So we're called to do two things that go hand in hand, and they amount to vigilance. Two things. Number one, prepare to meet Jesus. And secondly, pray until you meet Jesus. Prepare to meet Jesus and pray until you meet Jesus. That first one, prepare to meet Jesus. The end of all things is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand, to use James' phrase. We need to be prepared to meet him. We must live in a self-controlled way, a temperate way. And we need to be sober-minded or alert or watchful or vigilant. To borrow from another of Jesus' parables, we need to be busy in our master's business when the master comes. Blessed is the one whom the master finds busy in the master's business when he comes. And those who are sober-minded or watchful are taking this seriously. They are vigilant and they are diligent, prepared to give an answer to their master when he arrives. This is how I have used the time and the resources that you have given to me while you were away. This is what I have done 
with what you have entrusted me. Such persons are not busy in the indulgence of their passions. Well, while the cat's away, the mice will play. Master's not here. We can live as we please. But no, Peter says we are busy doing the will of God. That was two weeks ago, 1 Peter 1 through 6. Not indulging the, the passions of the flesh, the desires of man and their bodies, but rather doing the will of God so that when God comes, when God in, in the flesh, Jesus Christ comes, we can say we are doing your will. We are, we are being faithful stewards. And those who are not sober-minded, those who are not watchful, they think they have lots of time. They think, he's been away so long, he'll be away so long. 2,000 years have passed. I'll clean up my act soon. I'll get it together soon. I know I'm kind of backsliding right now. I know I'm, you know, I'm not really on top of things. I'll get there, I'll get there, you know. I've got time, I've got time, I can, I can fix this. As I said in the first point, that's not how a Christian thinks. Such a person is not prepared, not preparing. Such a person is not prepared to meet Jesus. We need to be prepared to meet him today. Which may sound and seem easy while you sit in church. Yes, I'm sitting in church. It's easy to meet him right now. But do you need to repent to your spouse or to a friend, to a brother or sister in Christ or to others for your sin? Should you not bring to light your hidden sin and truly repent of it? Because what is hidden will be brought to light. And you ought to bring it to light now and repent of it so that the accounting of your actions shows not that you concealed your sin, but that you revealed your sin. And I say again, if this unnerves the Christian, that's good. Be awakened. Sober up. The end of all things is at hand. This is not the time to get comfortable in your sin. This is not the time to go through weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and years of counseling on a sin that you refuse to put to death and deal with. This is not the time to delay. This is not the time to presume on doctrine. Well, Calvinism, you know. Once saved, always saved. God's people persevere to the end, can't lose their salvation. You can apostatize. You can turn from the Lord. But by God's will, the elect will not lose their salvation. And how is it that God preserves them? He moves them to repent. How is it that God preserves the elect unto salvation infallibly? By moving them to repentance. So when, when confronted... By the warnings of scripture to God's people, the God's people listen and they learn and they obey and thereby they are corrected and restored and kept on that path. And it is the goats of Satan who hear the warnings and pay no attention. The sheep tremble and they cling closer to Christ whose love and power keeps them safe. They hear the warnings and they say, no, 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 not me. I cling to Christ. I repent of my sin. And the goats say, he's not coming anytime soon. He's not coming anytime soon. I, I've got time. It's no big deal. I'll, I'll deal with it. Those who hear of the imminence of Christ's return, but are not watchful and vigilant, they show themselves to be of another nature than Christ's sheep, because Christ's sheep hear his voice, and his voice says, lo, I am coming quickly. 
So we need to be prepared to meet him. And if the sermon again makes you feel uncomfortable, what are your options? Repent. Turn from your sin, brothers and sisters in Christ. Repent of it. What's, what's the other option? Continue living comfortably in sin? That's not an option. You can attempt to soothe your conscience with some doctrinal technicality all day long, or you can deal with your sin because you love the Lord and you want to meet him in purity and holiness. What am I ultimately pressing on you? Self-control, repentance, holiness. What Christian will complain? Pastor was really pressing self-control and repentance and holiness. What Christian will say, I don't like that. Only the one who doesn't want to deal with and repent of their sin who doesn't want it to be brought to light, but it's through bringing it to light that it is put to death. Do you have a lingering love for sin? Wake up. Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Meet the Lord in purity, and you will meet him in joy. Secondly, pray until you meet Jesus. I said the sheep tremble. The sheep tremble. How can, I, how can I do this? How can I persevere faithfully to the end? Pray. Pray. Why? Because prayer appeals to divine power. And it is by God's divine power that we are kept. It is him working in and through us. It is our action, but it is God's power. And so we who want to meet Christ with joy, we who want to meet the bridegroom with joy, and we who want to persevere in holiness until then, it is by being vigilant in prayer that we are able to do so as we rely upon and trust in divine power. Those who are sober-minded, alert, and awake, we have to pray and pray and pray some more. Is your prayer life merely a matter of intervals? I pray at this hour, this hour, and this hour. That's good to have a, a regular time of prayer in your day. But... We can do even better. We can pray throughout the day that we might sin, that we might fight against sin and temptation. Because sin and temptation don't have nice scheduled intervals, do they? So if you are faced with a given temptation, start praying right then and there. And don't stop praying until that temptation has passed. Uh, men have said, I prayed to God that he would help me fight against this, this lust or this desire, and I still fell into it as though it's God's fault. You stopped praying. Keep praying until it passes. Pray and obey and pray and obey. Pray to God for strength and act. Don't wait. Pray for strength and act against the sin. Pray that you might deny the sin and then deny it. Pray that you might cultivate holiness and then cultivate holiness and then pray more. Pray that you might sustain these things. Pray that you might not be presumptuous. Pray that you might be humble. Pray that you might be sensitive to sin always. Pray that you might hate sin. Pray that you might love Jesus and holiness all the more. And then keep this up and keep praying until you meet Jesus. Pray all the way there. Why? Can God's power sustain us to the end? Absolutely. You're appealing to an infinite power source, which is a rather irreverent way to speak of God's omnipotence. Peter said in the beginning of this letter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, 
He said, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, and we are being guarded by God's power through faith. So the one who prays is the one who's trusting in God. May I not be presumptuous. Help me, O Lord. May I be always humble and not prideful. Help me, O Lord. Help me to hate this sin. Help me to put it to death. And then acts, takes action, persevering in prayer, being vigilant in prayer. God's power is super abundant, more than sufficient to keep us. And his love is more than sufficient to motivate us. And knowing always we can, we can repent Yes, I have backslidden. Yes, I need to fight against the sin and put it to death. I can go to my God and he will forgive me. I can always repent to him, not with presumption, but with sincere repentance. It is not always being able to repent that makes me push off my sin. It makes me run from my sin right now. The certainty of Christ's return should encourage us. It's not a question of if but when? And until then, we ought to pray and pray and pray more. You don't need to have a long prayer. Jesus said, the Gentiles think that they will be heard for their many words. They're wrong. Pray a short prayer, prayer then and there. I still feel tempted. Then keep praying. I still feel tempted. Why stop? Why stop? Will God get sick of you asking for help to resist temptation? Well, God say, that's enough. I'm out of power. You're using too much. That's what I get in, in the mail from the energy company. Compared to your neighbors, you use too much power. Well, that's because I have a sick wife who's at home and needs the air conditioning on, so I don't care. God doesn't say, you're using too much power. God says, I am sufficient, super abundant. I am all sufficient. Rely upon me. We have to pray. We have to prepare to meet Jesus and pray until we do. And if Jesus finds us praying and preparing, we will meet him with joy. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Brothers and sisters, I call upon you to repent of your sins. Make no peace with it. Don't rely on counseling sessions. Is pastoral counseling good? Absolutely. But don't think, well, we're going to work on this for X period of time. Yes, you're going to fight that sin for the rest of your life, but stop relying on or being presumptuous or putting things off. Well, the next session we'll deal with this. Kill it now. Fight it now. Put it to death now. Prepare to meet Jesus and pray until you meet him. You might say, Turn it, tone it down, pastor. What does James say? The end of all things is at hand. Do you really believe that? Children, teens, do you believe that the end of all things is at hand? That's just something that adults like to say to scare us into becoming Christians. You're fooling yourself. The end of all things is at hand. What's really important? What really matters? Is it the things happening at high school? Is it the drama in your class? Is it the things happening on social media? and the apps that you use, do those things really matter? You need to be, though you are young, you need to be sober-minded. You need to take this seriously. Perhaps preparing to meet Jesus means coming to him for the first time. 
repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Perhaps you have reached older years and you have not yet come to the Lord. How many years has he given to you to turn? How many gospel entreaties have you heard where he says, come to me, and you have resisted? How long will you presume upon his patience? How long will you presume upon his patience, which is meant to bring you to salvation? You will have to give an account for all of that gospel light that you received and rejected, and it will damn you all the more. No, prepare to meet Jesus for the end of all things is at hand. And brothers and sisters, therefore, be self-controlled and watchful in prayer. Peter has taught us imminence, temperance, and vigilance. Jesus is coming. We must exercise self-control, and we must persevere in this with constant prayer. And every Christian ought to pray, Amen, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that we, in so many ways and at so many times, have not prepared ourselves. We have not lived in light of that looming mountain, in light of that imminent end, that imminent return of our beloved Lord. We know that the bridegroom is coming. We know that the wedding is about to take place. We know all these things, but we do not live in light of that reality. We act like those who are drunk unaware, stupefied. Oh Lord, please forgive us for our lack of, of vigilance and our lack of diligence and temperance. Please help us to meet Jesus with joy. We know that we are guarded by your power and we pray that you would help us and enable us knowing that you are all sufficient. Oh Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us to resist temptation and to be every day more and more like Jesus Christ. Oh, give us peace in our consciences through the blood of Jesus Christ as we turn from our sin and turn to our Savior. And we pray in his name, in Jesus' name.